0: Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff.
1: And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why tarantula venom could be an alternative to opioids. Then you'll learn about where your emotions come from and how to hack them from neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett.
0: Let's satisfy some curiosity.
1: Even if you aren't afraid of spiders, you still wouldn't want one to bite you. Those bites hurt. So what if I told you spider venom could be used to cure pain? Yep. It turns out that certain molecules found in tarantula venom might one day be used as an alternative to opioid painkillers. Here's why. When a tarantula catches its prey, it paralyzes its victim by injecting a cocktail of small proteins called peptides. These peptides are attracted to little gateways on the membranes that surround nerve cells called sodium ion channels. Nerve cells use these channels to send messages to and from the brain. If they're blocked by spider venom peptides, then the nerve can't fire and the victim can't move. Scary, right? The venom a tarantula produces contains variations on these ion channel blocking peptides for different types of nerves. This is important because each nerve pathway is a one way street that goes either to or from the brain. Motor nerves are responsible for sending messages from the brain to muscles, telling them to run, jump or put down the ice cream. But other types of nerves send sensory information from the body to the brain, such as information about temperature, pressure, or pain. At the University of Queensland, molecular biologists discovered that a super-venomous tarantula called the Chinese bird spider produces a toxin called huenotoxin-4 that has a special attraction to the ion channels on pain receptors. Even better, they were able to modify this protein to make it both more specific by only acting on the pain reception nerves they were after and more effective. Basically, they modified spider venom to paralyze less and numb pain more. Their goal is to eventually develop this protein into an alternative to opioids for treating chronic pain. Opioids like morphine produce unpleasant side effects like nausea and vomiting, but their biggest problem is their addictiveness. Opioid addiction is a serious epidemic. According to the CDC, there are 128 opioid-related deaths every day in the U.S. alone. An alternative drug that relieves pain without the side effects or the addictiveness of opioids could be the best weapon in the fight against opioid addiction. Who knew spider venom could save lives?
0: Today we have a guest who can help you understand where your emotions come from and how you can hack them psychology researcher and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett is the author of the book How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. And we interviewed her during a live podcast at the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the AAAS, annual meeting in Seattle in February. Here's Lisa on where your emotions come from.
2: Initially, when people started doing brain imaging experiments, they thought that they could find the spots in the brain for this behavior or that experience, right? So the idea is like psychological categories like anger or fear or sadness or certain types of memory or certain types of perception. The idea was that they're like mental organs and that so you should be able to identify spots in the brain for this or that. And um, what we've learned after 30 years of research is that there are no spots in the brain like that, which leads some people to think, okay, well, we've learned nothing, but actually what we learned is that's the wrong question. The right question is really how are neurons working together to give you a feeling or a thought or control your body? And is there, are there common computational principles across the brain that let us understand what the brain is doing? So for example, we routinely refer to the back of the brain, back of the cortex, as visual cortex, right. okay? But if you look at the signal in that cortex, you can see that it's carrying information about audition, hearing. It's carrying information about touch. Some of the neurons, from, you know, so you have your retina and uh, in your eye which, you know, takes in um, frequencies of light and sends that information to uh, a nucleus in the thalamus called the lateral geniculate nucleus. But visceral information from your body, like the sensory information from your body, also goes to that nucleus. And some of the neurons from the retina go directly to your hypothalamus, which everyone thinks is important only for regulating the body, but actually... Apparently not, because it also, you know, takes some information from the retina. And the hippocampus, which everyone thinks is important for memory, turns out to be very important in regulating your body. So the point here is that there are common, common ingredients, sort of common computational processes that the brain is engaged in. And it's engaged in those processes, whether you're thinking or feeling or seeing or, right, that really... Spots in the brain for this or that is not really the right question to ask. Instead, the brain seems to be doing a couple of things, and it's doing those things pretty consistently. Think of them like ingredients in your kitchen cabinet. You can take flour and water and a little bit of sugar or salt, and you can make a lot of things, a lot of recipes with those basic ingredients. And that's the way to think about the brain, too.
1: It seems like, if emotions are sort of interpretations of sensations, is that everything, kind fair? Of
2: everything you experience yeah. is your brain making meaning of sensory input, everything. Okay. Your sight, your se- what you hear, what you see, what you smell. Emotions are no different than anything else that your brain does. Your brain's, one of its main jobs is to make sense of sensory sense data from the world and from your body, and it's doing that all the time.
1: Sometimes you make emotions, lots of times you don't. You're just making meaning of it some other way. At this point, I asked Lisa, if our emotions come from the way the brain interprets things, then can we hack them? Like when I'm nervous, when I'm about to get in front of a bunch of people like I was at AAAS, I reframe it as I'm not nervous. I'm excited. Lisa said the evidence says that, yes, we can do that. It's just a lot harder than the way I made it sound. She said there's a psychology researcher named Jeremy Jameson who studies test anxiety He trains people with test anxiety to reframe their arousal levels. That is, when they feel worked up, they recategorize that as determination instead of anxiety. And those people end up being able to overcome their test anxiety and pass their classes. It's a skill you have to practice, but it is possible. And I will say that the data is convincing
2: I think, these are really beautiful studies. But also, you know, when my daughter was 12 years old, she's a tiny little kid testing for a black belt in karate amongst all these like, you know, huge uh, lugs of, uh, you know, uh, men. And her sensei, who was a 10th degree black belt, it's like a really powerful, scary dude, came up to this tiny little girl and said, get your butterflies flying in formation. He didn't say, don't be scared. He didn't say, calm down. Actually, calming down is not the thing to do before you test for a black belt. It's also not the thing to do before you take a test. But he said, get your butterflies flying in formation. Yeah, it's amazing, right? It's amazing, and I I always use it um, as an example of how you have much more control over how you make sense of sensations than you think you do. It's just not the kind of control we're used to. We're used to the kind of control where you, know, you can go into your closet and pick, am I going to wear this or am I going to wear that, or am I going to eat this, or am I going to eat that? Like you snap your fingers and you make a choice. But the kind of control that we have isn't like that. It's more like, that's, that's actually really hard to do. It's hard to just snap your fingers and change how you feel. But the control we have is more like driving where you, you have a skill, and at first it's really hard, and you make a bunch of mistakes, but eventually, if you practice it, you get really good at it, and it becomes really automatic, and then it just becomes one thing in a, of a menu of things that you can make.
0: If you want to learn more about where our emotions come from, and how you can hack them, check out our full uncut interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett. You can watch it on our YouTube channel right now at youtube.com slash curiosity.com, all spelled out. And we'll also put a link to watch in today's show notes.
1: All right, so let's go over what we learned today.
0: Well, researchers can modify spider venom so it does less paralyzing and more pain relieving. Word is still out on where I can get a radioactive spider, but you know, someday.
1: I'm surprised they haven't come out with that yet. I mean, everybody wants to be Spider-Man. Spider-Man rules. (laughs) And we learned that there aren't spots in the brain that are responsible for certain emotions. Instead, neurons work together in particular ways to provide the ingredients for a sensation that we interpret as a certain emotion. And you can change that interpretation. It just takes practice. I, for one, love that she brought get your butterflies flying information into my life because I'm going to use that all the time.
0: Pretty nice. And I hope people enjoy a little bit of extra stuff from us. To help keep them, you know, entertained in May. If anybody's stuck at home, got some YouTube videos to watch now.
1: Yeah. If you didn't get a Nintendo Switch like I did, oh my <laughs> gosh. We're, <laughs> I feel like it is my role on this podcast to be the non video game player. And now I'm like playing video games.
0: Which is weird because I've been packing so much, getting ready to move that I've barely been playing. So, It's a real yin-yang thing we've got going on, really. Exactly.
1: It's your fault. Like, you stopped playing, and then suddenly I needed to play. I
0: think the takeaway is at least one host of the Curiosity Daily podcast must be playing video games regularly at all times. (laughs) Exactly. Today's first story was written by Cameron Duke and edited by Ashley Hamer, who's the managing editor for Curiosity Daily.
1: Today's episode was produced and edited by Cody Goff.
0: Join us again tomorrow to learn something new in
1: just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.